It's April 21, 2022, and welcome to Leaders on the Frontier. My name is David Lees, and I'm your host today. Welcome, everybody. This, the Frontier Center for Public Policy is about better public policy for a better tomorrow. Our topic today is about the state of Canadian journalism and the media in 2022. We know that the media plays a vital role in our society, the, the health and well-being of democracy. And yet the trust, the confidence in legacy media in many ways has never been lower. At the same time, so-called independent and smaller media outlets are on the rise. What is the role of the so-called fourth estate? And what are the key issues that face us today in this challenging environment? And why is it that certain big stories tend to be only found in the smaller media? Well, we are delighted to have our leader on the frontier guest today is Miss Holly Doan. She is the co-founder and publisher of the legendary Black Locks Reporter, an online media outlet based in Ottawa. Miss Stone is an award-winning journalist and producer of many political history documentaries for television, I believe about a number of prime ministers, in fact. And as a TV journalist, her career has spanned Parliament Hill and four provinces with both the CTV and CBC networks. She was a former bureau chief in Beijing, and Miss Doan brings one of a kind insider's perspective on the state of media today. So welcome, Holly. We're so glad you could join us. Delighted to be here, David. So I want to set the stage a little bit about who Holly Doan is. I, I'm just fascinated by your background and all the stories that you have as we've gotten to know each other. But can you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and how you uh, got drawn into the world of journalism? Um, first of all, hello, everyone, and uh, thank you for the invitation to the Frontier Centre in Winnipeg, Manitoba, my home province. Nice. Uh, I, I grew up in the Interlake area, not too far from a place that you may have heard of called the Narciss Snake Pits. Very good. Uh, right. Fa famously profiled in uh, the New York Times and the National Geographic. And I, I want to refer to a question you asked me earlier when we were chatting this week that your um, viewers may find amusing. You asked me, David asked me, so what's Ottawa like? Ottawa, what, what, what about it? And I, and I said, Ottawa's a bag of snakes. That's right. I got the connection there. <laughs> but you yes. know, I like snakes and snakes are a natural part of the ecosystem as they are in Narcissus, as they are in Ottawa. And like snakes, not only are they fascinating, but they are sometimes repulsive, but you can never look away. And that's Ottawa. Wow. Well, <laughs> we're looking forward to getting into this conversation and coming back to the so-called um, world of snakes in Ottawa. <laughs> um, but what, how did you get drawn into journalism? Uh, well, all right. So, um, my dad was a private school kid from Toronto who moved to Manitoba for a really different kind of life. He was a fisheries biologist and he served uh, as director of fisheries and wildlife under the premiership of Sterling Lyon. So we grew up, in, I grew up in the country, in the outdoors. I studied journalism at Red River College. And my first job in journalism was at CKX Television in Brandon, Manitoba, wow. which sadly is an outlet that's gone now. It was a famous training ground for journalists. Um, my career was mostly television, as you mentioned, in Saskatoon and then Edmonton. Uh, I am CBC Alberta trained when the CBC did a fantastic job of training journalists. 
Uh, I worked for a couple of years at the legislature during the era of Premier Don Getty. Um, I joined CTV National News in Ottawa in 1993, just before that famous watershed election where Canadians were introduced to Lucien Bouchard and Preston Manning. Wow. Um, from 1995 to 98, I was Beijing bureau chief for CTV based in Beijing, China. I covered the death of the last Supreme Communist leader, Deng Xiaoping, as well as the handover of Hong Kong back to the motherland in 1997. I spent a couple of years with the network back in Toronto, along with my husband, uh, by the way, who's also a journalist. And um, I'd like to say a couple of things about him. Uh, Tom Korski is the editor of Black Clocks Reporter, and he has spent most of his career in radio and or with the Sun chain, the South China Morning Post. And some of your uh, viewers may have heard him on one of the five or six talk radio podcasts a week that he mm -hmm. does uh, nationally about Black Locks uh, stories. Um, for 10 years from 2004, the two of us co-produced political history documentaries, which aired on CPAC, that's the Cable Public Affairs Channel. We had our own uh, media company by that time. And in 2012, when news was moving online, we launched Black Locks Reporter. And so this month, April, I am uh, marking, I'll say marking, not celebrating, uh, 40 years in journalism, which is wow. a shock. Yeah, Congratulations, uh, Holly. <laughs> That's the story. Okay, so so one of the things um, I, I noted in your extensive background is you've really covered the beat. Uh, you have um, gone through all kinds of local news outlets, as an example. How important was that to your training or education, if you will, as a journalist? Well, and I'll talk more about this later, but you know, you cannot learn everything you need to know about journalism in university. Um, it, it really is an apprenticeship system. And there were once those kind of jobs that gave journalists the, the foundation uh, to, to cover, you know, there are journalists now who land on Parliament Hill straight out of journalism school. Uh, or with a couple of years experience before they land on Parliament Hill, which is arguably the toughest beat in the country. Right. And when I arrived in Ottawa in 1993, I had already been 11 years covering school boards. Um, and, you know, I can, if you uh, permit a, a personal example, my first job in Brandon, Manitoba that I mentioned, uh, once a week I would get into the company Pinto and drive through snowstorms to places like Minnedosa or Verdon um, or Boise Vane to cover, to cover town council. Um, I covered Brandon School Board. I covered the Brandon University Board of Governors. I once spent a, a whole week covering budget deliberations at Brandon City Hall and then at the listening to councillors discuss uh, setting the mill rate. And then at the close of those deliberations, I had my big interview with the mayor wearing his chain of office, and my Ken Burgess was his name. And my first question was, what's a mill rate? <laughs> Good for you. you now, God bless him. <laughs> he knew it was Brandon, and he was looking at a 20-year-old punk who was probably 
filing her taxes for the very first time mm -hmm. that year. And, you know, so after that experience, when you move, you can start to gradually move up to Saskatoon City Council and the Alberta legislature with those five years of excellent CBC training. So by the time I arrived in Ottawa, at least I had a foundation in understanding uh, municipal and provincial governance, even if I didn't quite know how a bill became law in Ottawa yet. Uh, but exactly. But, but there's extensive knowledge that one gains through that kind of um, apprenticeship, if you will. So that's a, that's a very important uh, part of your background. So I want to ask you quickly, what makes a great journalist in your point of view? Somebody, uh, this is interesting. Just today I had an email from somebody called Terry Glavin, who some of you may know, who is a, uh, a more seasoned journalist even than I am. And he said he had concerns that uh, reporters weren't, couldn't or weren't able or didn't want anymore to tackle the hard stories, the big stories, the ones that you would call important or that journalists break are hard work and they're often tedious. And so what makes a great journalist or a great story is somebody willing to put in that work. What we do at Blacklocks, by the way, it's document journalism, which I can tell you a bit more about, is not particularly glamorous. It's damn tedious. It's a lot of work. It's finding a needle in a haystack every day. And one of the key things that you do as a journalist is when you think you have a story, the first thing you do is try to find every single way that it's not a story. Interesting. You look for every way you can to shoot it down. And mm -hmm. if you can't, then maybe you got something. Wow. Okay. So let's, let's shift. You've, you've had extensive experience um, really um, decades in, in journalism, and then you shifted to the world of being a publisher in 2012. You with great courage and audacity with uh, <laughs> co-founded the Black Lock Reporter that amazing group of investigative journalists. So what is Black Locks and what is your mission? Um, well, okay, first I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about the name. Um, Thomas Highland Blacklock was a real guy. Uh, he was born in uh, rural Ontario in the 1870s and he went west to make his fortune. He was a frontier newspaper man. And frontier? he was you yes, said? frontier, okay. frontier. Wow. Well, it's Saskatchewan was barely a province. He was the first mayor of Weyburn, Saskatchewan. And then he was assigned to Parliament Hill in 1912 uh, for the Winnipeg Telegram. Uh, he was also a national columnist and a World War I correspondent for the Montreal Gazette. And I first saw him, his dour, unsmiling photo hanging on the wall in center block in the so-called hot room of the press gallery, where he had been the a president of the press gallery in 1922. Now, he, we then discovered in the archives, the National Archives, that he had an extensive friendship with Prime Minister Sir Robert Borden and Arthur Meehan, particularly Arthur Meehan. And their communication, their letters to each other are in the National Archives. They uh, had a very frank conversation about policy, about conscription. Uh, they, um, they argued. They uh, had dinner together with their wives. They played bridge together. They smoked. <laughs> and, and Thomas Blacklock, when he died, only one person, there was a memorial here in Ottawa where I am, but only one person took the train from Ottawa to Campbellville, Ontario for the internment, and that was Arthur Meehan. 
So we chose this person as our brand because of one line that we found in, in the records that he said. Tom Blacklock used to say, that ain't the way I saw, I heard it. Isn't so in, in those words, you know, the, the tone, the irreverence, the, the suggestion of knowledge that others don't possess, wow. we thought that this, this captured the flavor of Blacklock's reporter. So... Uh, more so that's fasting home. So, so are you saying within that historic moment, even with the, dare I say, the small community of Ottawa in its day, Tom Blacklock had not lost his compass as a journalist. He was prepared to say, even to his friend, the prime minister, that's not the way I see it. Yeah, a lot. They did a lot. Wow. I mean, you know, they're now it's hard to imagine now a reporter having that kind of confidence of a, of a prime minister, but it was a different time. We were a smaller country. Wow. Right? Now is, is Blacklock's partisan? Do you get government funding? Um, blunt? Well, okay. You know, first I want to answer your, I'll tell you about that, but first I want to answer your question about mission statement because okay. this is important. So our, well, our attitude is Thomas Blacklock's. What do we do? that's different. And this was our mission statement. We would do federal affairs, not politics. So what do we do? We do bills every stage. We, have, we cover regulations, government contracts, federal court rulings, uh, internal government audits and reports, public accounts uh, and committees, especially committees. And I can tell you about those later and also access to information. So, and I can, we can talk about that later too, if you like, but to your question, um, politics, are we partisan? Uh, well, you know, the, there was a staffer, happened to be a, a political staffer to a conservative senator who, who said, who gave me what I consider to be the greatest compliment of my Ottawa career. She said, you guys are doing an amazing job. When we're in government, I will hate you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because what, what is that? What is this she's saying? Well, accountability journalism naturally skews to opposition because document journalists are sort of looking for the same things that, that opposition politicians are, maybe for different reasons. And when we uh, launch, well, we do have now, yes, we have many members of the Federal Conservative Caucus subscribed to Black Locks, but I want to tell you a secret. When we launched from 2012 to 2015, and we were covering the Harper administration in the same way, we had not one conservative subscriber, not one, not one MP, not one Senator, uh, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation subscribed, but that was it. Our first, our very first subscriber was a liberal MP and then all the unions. Isn't so that this is the problem with Ottawa. Like you can't really be too partisan because it's dangerous. To the business model, I mean, in an atmosphere of increasing dis uh, uh, increasing distrust of media, partisanship, as you know, in this hyperinflated environment, is like a red flag. Mm -hmm. And if you are very partisan, you better hope that your guys stay in power forever, which is exactly. not going to happen. Well, and the thing is, Canadians will pay for it if they catch a whiff of that partisanship. They will not pay for it. And so, then, how do I buy groceries? Wow. So you mentioned an interesting term that I want to dive into a little bit, and that is accountability journalism. What do you really mean by that in practice? Well, we don't really, for instance, cover announcements per se. We would be more likely to cover the results of the program 18 months later 
So if they announce, say, a new green, a new green tech subsidy, we might mention that somewhere, but we would be more likely to look for the department reports 18 months later to find out how effective that subsidy was. What was the return on it? Wow. Um, a lot of people don't know that this is something that the Harper government did, that they mandated internal audits of programs that must be posted online. Now, the government doesn't make them hard to find or hard to, easy to find. They, they bury them but we know where to find them. And that's part of accountability journalism in the documents. So one of the things that, you know, um, I'll, I'll give you an example of committee coverage, for instance, which is a, a accountability journalism. Black Locks covers all the committees, like House of Commons and Senate. And this is the real work of parliament. This is the, where the real work happens, not the theater of question period, because the committees reflect um, an ancient right to petition your government, presenters, lobbyists, uh, associations bring insightful information that sometimes can improve legislation. That's the idea, right? And committees are a place where lawmakers get to question uh, bureaucrats about the effectiveness of the programs. Now, a funny thing, we saw that as accountability for legislation as it proceeded through the first reading, second reading, third reading, the Royal Assent stage. But a funny thing happened when we started to cover committees so intensely. Subscribers reacted and they, they seemed to be um, surprised that there were these congressional, Washington congressional-like hearings going on continuously in Ottawa. Huh. And we thought, well, how much of a citizen's understanding of how democracy in our parliamentary system works is damaged when journalists no longer cover parliamentary business, when no, we no longer look for accountability as the legislation proceeds. So here, I'll give you an anecdote. Um, in, uh, during the, the Harper era, again, and this is because when we had our, our, our epiphany, <laughs> uh, there were a couple of bills, labor bills, they were nicknamed the big union bosses bills. I still remember them, C-325 and 277. They were about, um, uh, forcing declaration of uh, union finances and oh, yes, right. executive uh, benefits, right? And the night that the Senate was going to pass the first bill, I remember a reporter in the hallway outside the Senate asking a senator, well, what, 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 are, what, is, what are these bills and why are they important? Now, the bells are ringing. The, that is too late. That is too late to be asking, why is this bill important? That's too late to be telling Canadians about the fact that there were constitutional experts testifying that these bills are unconstitutional. That's too late for that. So accountability for legislation as it proceeds through the, the to all the way to royal assent is, is important. But we realized that nobody had been covering these bills since Black Clocks. So guess, guess what happened? All the large unions and labor organizations bought institutional level subscriptions because as the librarian at Unifor said to me, we can't get this information in the Ottawa Citizen. Wow. So Eureka, this was a business model was born. Isn't that fascinating? So you realize that looking at the institutions of democracy, e.g. the House of Commons, the committee work, the bills, uh, freedom of information requests, you, by covering those in great detail, that actually had great business value. Right. And 
access to information deserves a, a segment here itself. But what we do at Blacklocks essentially is we specialize in the extraction, the identification and the extraction of information that individuals and organizations need for the prosperity, the prosperity of their of Canadians and their member organizations. So just the way you would say, give your taxes to the accountant who understands the tax code, uh, you know, we, you subscribe to Black Locks to get information. At least that's how we see our readers every day. And information, back to your political question, information does not have a political affiliation. Uh, information is as valuable to the Petroleum Producers Association as it is to the Canadian Labor Congress as it is to small businesses fighting red tape wanting to access pandemic relief programs so yeah sure we 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 spice it up yeah we we put a juicy lead on there we do a provocative tweet we've been accused of sensationalizing but you know they those are people yeah. who've never been to fleet street but our content must be readable we're not a trade publication uh, and when you actually for those members who are watching or subscribers when you read blacklock's content it reads as our editor likes to say like a search warrant it's really yes. dry that's right <laughs> fact citation report yeah. fact maybe right. a quote okay but, uh, but just to put things into perspective holly you don't find this um like this is very uncommon is it not today in in the media like i I, we're, we're subscribers at the frontier and we love it because it's interesting every day we're getting easily a half a dozen, a dozen interesting stories about things that who knew what was really happening um, as follow-up to an announcement regarding a policy, a revelation. And it's just, it's very factual. As you say, it's almost like a court document, <laughs> um, but this isn't happening very much in the mainstream media, right? Well, um, all right, so I, I want to talk a little bit about what's happened in uh, newsrooms because you know th there's a lot of awful things said about media that they're yeah. hacks and you know fake news. I hate that term, um, but I'm sure a lot of people I've felt this way that when that the news all seems all the same, that all the news outlets are all doing the same thing. Well, there's a reason for that, and it's actually quite. Uh, mechanical. The consolidation of the news media, which was uh, hastened by the internet, but it was happening long before the internet, um, caused the closure of local outlets and then the death of that apprenticeship system we were talking to. So the, the journalists don't have that experience before they come to a beat like ours. Those jobs are gone. But, you know, the consolidation of editing is another thing. Uh, when media was healthy, we had a beat system. So if you worked a, a at beat, the court, a beat, a beat system. system, you heard of beats, right? Yeah. So if you uh, were um, a court reporter in Edmonton, uh, you hung around the courthouse all day. Uh, you weren't in the mix of main main news. You you got to know the lawyers and the clerks and the registrars and the cops. Um, you had lunch in the courthouse cafeteria, a great one in Edmonton, by the way, and you learned things. And you could tell your assignment desk what the story was, the original story. Well, now with the shrinkage and the consolidation and the hollowing out of newsrooms, uh, you don't have that anymore. All the assignment process is happening often in, from one place and often in Toronto. So you have an assignment editor in Toronto 
telling the reporter in a satellite office what this what he wants him to cover today. You don't have anything? Okay, we have this. Now, how does a, an assignment editor in Toronto know what the story is at the Public Accounts Committee in Ottawa? They don't. But they've got the same news release that everybody else got. So they know that the Prime Minister is going to Tim Hortons today. Uh, they were watching the 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 comments at Rideau Cottage as well so they know what he said they can they're going to decide what the story is and talk to the reporter about that everybody's doing the same thing and then then the podcasters and the columnists pick up on that same strand of news and they'll add their analysis or their uh political spin or their opinion but what do we have here we have conformity and conformity equals mediocrity so that, that's what you're seeing. It's it's there are technical reasons. It's not reporters deciding that they don't want to do anything else. There's few of them left, and that's they're being assigned from Toronto. Okay, so so just to recap quickly, then, if you looked at the big factors, the big variables around the state of the media today, then media consolidation is a biggie, and then that's why you'd say, well, you're also consolidating many things, including the editing function. And that's why you'd say you'd have that kind of mediocrity. You don't have the the individual journalists really digging into those other stories. Is that but right? But also the law, the loss of skills of those individual journalists. Yes. You know, when when I was covering um, you know, Saskatoon City Council or you know, somewhere along, there was always some, you know, nicotine-stained old editor who'd been around since 1965, I guess, who would be saying, Holly, we already covered that story four months ago. Find something else. And, you know, and I did have those five years of excellent training at CBC where some cranky producer would always say, you know, that's your lead? No, rewrite it. That was 11 years of that. I don't think the reporters are getting that experience today because those jobs are gone. Yeah. And so they're, they're, they've never experienced a beat system. So uh, they're, they're really in a tough environment. Uh, but, but I guess one of the things that strikes me about this is this... Um, the state of the media then is in a very difficult dynamic because then if you have kind of this conformity of, of message and maybe not the lack of investigative journalism for many reasons, including the breakdown of the apprenticeship system, then surely you have a problem then, Holly, because content is king ultimately in journalism. People read something, they subscribe to your service because they like the content, they want the content. So if there's not much content, then all of a sudden you don't have as much revenue and then you don't have as much money to hire those journalists. So that becomes this vicious cycle, doesn't it? Also, yes. And also the internet killed your killed advertising too. Mm. So that, that revenue stream was uh, killed. And then the response to that, instead of innovating, was to continue layoffs and sell off properties and shrink newsrooms and close bureaus and close outlets until uh, you became sort of a victim of your own uh, austerity. Right. And then then all of a sudden you don't have journalists anymore who know how to do that same kind of content, particularly when it comes to covering government. I, I think the media, to be fair, still does a good job on some kinds of stories. Uh -huh. um, but I think when it comes to covering government, which is a hard beat, they've they've kind of they've they're, they've lost their way. So so what would be an example of that in, in your mind? Well, let's take access to information. 
because I wanted mm. to tell you a little bit about that. Yes. That's something that Blacklocks relies on. Um, a few years ago, there was a study by Professor Sean Holman, of, formerly of Mount Royal University, who, that showed that journalists had, who had once been the main requesters of access to information uh, were no longer. And now average, there were more average citizens um, filing uh, access to information requests than journalists. Now, access to information, um, you know, when it was introduced in 1982 by Pierre Trudeau, uh, the senior Trudeau, it was considered innovative in the world. And now it is regressive. Now it has been increasingly used as a, the act has, as a shield uh, for bureaucrats against releasing information through misuse of exemptions and time delays. And it's become too difficult for harried journalists to even try to attempt. Lots do, lots still do, but you know, it, it's certainly difficult for average people or organizations because they are slow. Um, our own record, by the way, for an ATRIP request is four years, a four-year wait. Lots of people wait longer. Uh, access to information has become obtuse, unpleasant, and, you know, we have at any given time around a thousand access to information requests and the access to the, the commissioner will testify before committee and say a staff and money and a volume we don't have. But I can tell you and reporters go through this, that it's a, still a fight with individual ATEP officers, not all, but many at individual departments who like to parse your words on your requests and look for ways to avoid fulsome release. Wow. So if a reporter doesn't have, first of all, the experience of knowing how to deal with the system because there's no time in their newsroom, and they also don't have the spirit to fight for it. Mm. You know, as newsrooms no. have grown weaker, as we were talking about, there are fewer journalists around a fight. And journalism is a fight, or it should be. You know, you are you are looking for ways to fight for information and represent the people who read you. Well, you are not a government news release stenographer. And, you know, it's been too bad that there's not been more demands for reform to access by journalists, actually. But, but, but I think that um, analysis that you cited before where the journalists are not sending in those kinds of requests for information, um, they were in previous generations. I think it's interesting to ask you then, Holly, so at Blocklock, how many how many of those requests do you make every year, approximately? Oh, it, it's rolling. I mean, you know that access to information has been shut down during the pandemic because the the government considered it to be not safe. You're kidding. And so, right? I, I'm sorry, I wasn't aware of that. That's that's bizarre. Well, we report that, but it seems like nobody cares. Not just we; other journalists have as well. But it seems like no one really cares because the citizens don't really understand the impact of that. What wow. that means is you're not going to learn about uh, pandemic mismanagement. So we have a lot of documents to catch up on, especially relative to, as you say, COVID nineteen mismanagement. That's well, uh, that's okay. unreal. Yeah. So yeah, Blacklocks has around a thousand requests pending. We were putting in twenty five a month before, but we've wow. sort of stopped now because they cost five bucks each. Um, so because they're backed up, but one of the things though, with a minority parliament, that's been quite interesting with documents is that the liberals don't have the votes on the committees to prevent opposition parties from subpoenaing documents. So before last, last spring on the health committee, the opposition parties subpoenaed all documents to do with pandemic management. Wow. 
992,000 documents, which the Privy Council put the brakes on and dogged it on releasing them. They released 7,000 pages of documents. And then there was an election, Parliament was prorogued, and wow. it all it all so went away. So under what pretext did the Privy Council uh, hold back those uh, documents? Well, 992,000, and like, you know, and it's and backed wow. up, and we don't know, it's not safe, and, and uh, there wasn't really, to be honest. I'm struggling to remember what it was. But I can tell you that in that those 7,000 documents, that uh, Blacklocks fed off those all summer. Uh, there were contracts for uh, liberal friends. There were conversations with lobbyists. We learned that a lot of uh, quick decisions on huge contracts were made by political staff in the PMO and oh. not by the public health agency. The public health agency itself was in a tailspin. Uh, we, you know, we learned that in through the committee testimony that they had thrown out all the masks without replacing it. We uh, in those documents. What else was in those documents? Um, all sorts of things. There were conversations between lobbyists and the PMO saying, good to go, this will be approved, uh, approving contracts for ventilators, for instance, which had not even been approved by Health Canada, but there was a friendly, the, the company was owned by an ex-liberal MP. Wow. Um, there were lobbyists who managed, there was a the famous, the company Medicom in Quebec. Oh, yes, which right. Got a contract, a multi-million dollar contract to make masks, and it didn't even have a factory. Wow. It got the contract, and then it got a $4 million uh, uh, grant from the government of Quebec to build the factory. Wow. Now, some of this can be explained in that they were panicking because they weren't ready for pandemic. And so they were panicking to, to fire things up, but they were also very, very conscious of mistakes they were making. So for instance, the Korean government gave Canada a huge donation of masks as a thank you to our veterans for the Korean war. In the prime minister's office, according to these documents subpoenaed by the committee, uh, they said, we don't wanna talk about that. We're not gonna announce it, that's embarrassing that we're getting masks because it highlights our inability to get masks. We found out that masks were being contracted in China with companies that used forced labor, even though it was a stated policy not to do that. Well, you can't make this up, can you, Holly, unless you get this factual information to dig for it. And it is really astounding, isn't it? It is, but you know, you think it's glamorous going through 7,000 pages of documents on a Friday night at like nine o'clock? It's not. It's not much fun. And anyway, for most of the media outlets, you're going to have a desk in Toronto saying, but anyway, there's this news conference and we have to feed the beast and we have to get that on now. So I guess we, we have the luxury because we're a niche product. We have the luxury mm -hmm. of ignoring ignoring the daily biscuit and saying, well, we, if we are covering the same news conference as somebody else is, we're not going to be able to sell our product. Right. So we have, we we're forced to break stories. Mm -hmm. We're forced but, to have, or at least alternate information that they can't find elsewhere. But just based on those examples, uh, a number of things come to my mind, including, I mean, I know this is another topic, but the need for some kind of inquiry into what the heck happened over COVID-19 would be very appropriate, especially as we look at, you said 900,000 documents have not been mm -hmm, really pandemic management. I mean, that's incredible. So when we look also at journalism, can we talk a little bit about the training of journalists in journalism schools? Um, we know that we're often in a realm where not only is there kind of a conformity of a lot of writing of stories, 
there seems to be this emphasis for a lot of stories, not all in, in all fairness, but more opinion, um, kind of a, a narrative, if you will, rather than fact. Are you, do you observe that too? Does that beg yes. the question? What do, what do they learn in journalism school? Um, well, one of the reasons for that narrative is that the, what I was just talking about, the loss of skills. Yes. If you don't know how to find information or where to get a story, but you must file today, you will reach for something easy and put in content that maybe looks more like narrative than it does. I mean, I would challenge any journalist writing a story today where to replace a, any statement you might make with, a, with an original fact and see how that changes the complexity of the story. Sorry, can and you repeat I, that again? That, that's kind of like the, the journalistic test, is it not? Uh, well, um, we have all sorts of tests, but yeah, we, we would replace statements with facts an original fact and you can that can be background that doesn't have to be something you broke or just found out through access to information. it can be background from reports that you've done in the past um you can uh we always say no adjectives take the adjectives out of the story that that goes a long way to eliminating narratives but there is also a, a something else going on and that is the rise of activist journalism mm. and this is a new strand of journalism that believes it's not always about uh, fairly presenting both sides. It's about getting at the truth. What is the truth? And so I, that applies particularly to the organized, the independents, the organizations whose overriding mission is uh, climate change. Mm. So they that they feel that there it's the most important as existential issue facing us well, today. It's, it's a crisis so, for some people, isn't right, it? Right. Right. Now, the way I would do it, though, if, if I were them, I would hold the government to account instead of publishing a column by the environment minister in your paper. I would stick it to him on why he didn't quite meet the test on what they promised they were going to do with plastics. Um, or I would I would publish reports that we did at Blacklocks that recommended uh, uh, SUV and truck taxes and press for those things if you're an activist journalist organization it all but it all goes back now we, we don't do that we just put the information out there but it all goes back to information and even activist journalism and i listen i'm a free speech proponent let it all come and bring come one come all <laughs> more of the merrier you have your attitude have your activism do your partisan stuff and like let 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 uh, let canadians decide if they want to pay for you and support you then then let them do that and then some of us will will do something else but i would say that even if you're going to be an activist journalist at least you could be good at it you, right. could, you could base it on information <laughs> what about covering the committees what about filing access to information that supports what your publication is trying to do you know, the main thing here, isn't it, is that it, no one would really object to all sorts of media voices in a rich, in a rich tapestry of, of voices. But the problem is, should we pay for them all? Exactly. Well, that's a very nice bridge, Holly, to our next topic. And, and I see all the chats coming in. We're getting a lot. And one of them is all about the whole area you guessed it of government funding for the record you don't you don't accept government funding why is that 
Well, we made this decision in the living room. I guess this was going back to maybe 2017 when the idea of that they were going to subsidize media was first bounced around and it, we looked at each other and said with horror, we, we can't, we can't do that. We, we can't, first of all, oh, it'll never happen. We thought wrong, <laughs> but we just thought, I guess, after 40 years in journalism, we thought instinctively that first of all, I don't care what measures are in place to say who's a journalist and who isn't. I am not going to go cap in hand to the Minister of Finance for money to support my company. And if that's if that's how it's going to be, then I'm not going to have a company because that's not what the that's not how I was trained at the CBC or at by the, those nicotine stained editors. It's not that the government is the enemy, but it's that the government has no business in the newsroom. Right. And don't tell me that that relying on government to, that feeds you does not put them squarely in the newsroom. Exactly. Well, the word conflict of interest comes to my mind. Um, yep. So let's talk a little bit about this whole funding scheme. I, I yes. remember the emergence of the, the program well. Um, it, it's, it's really quite huge in terms of its magnitude and scale. And probably a lot of Canadians don't even realize what's really going on. So the funding of government to media is several thousand outlets. It's not like a dozen, right? This mm-hmm. is right the across list, the list country. The list is very long. The list is very long. How very long, long is that? Do you remember? Oh, uh, we've published it. Like you can get it on the CRA website. Um, I, I would say it runs single space to two pages for sure. Two pages, single space of outlets that are getting money. So be sure to look at it if, if uh, to our listeners. It's, it's a very interesting list to see even how your local news outlet is, is right. funded. So this and is I the- want to give you one example that we've talked about. Um, and one of them comes to mind is the Winnipeg Free Press. I understand that over half the revenues now for that paper are from government. Um, like this is, is, a, is this a good idea? Like how do you look anybody straight in the eye and say that you aren't carrying water for the state? I, I don't understand how you yeah, score that. Just time. under half. I looked it up after we talked about that. Our story, our story in 2020 said it was 38% of the Winnipeg, uh, Winnipeg Free Press's revenues. This is according to their statements, their financial statements, okay. were coming from government programs, not only the income supports to publishers, but uh, but the wage subsidies. And then there was emergency journalism support during the pandemic. Um, and, you know... It, not to pick on the Winnipeg Free Press, but we're going no. to, because the, the outgoing publisher of the Free Press is, was the chair of News Media Canada, that's the Publishers Association, that hired a liberal lobbyist to help secure that, that's another black lock story, they hired a liberal lobbyist named Isabel Metcalf to assist them in securing the, the money. Because originally in 2017, Heritage Minister Melanie Jolie said famously, many people quote her, we will not be bailing out failed business models. That was the position. I remember that. And it this came. is all going to be temporary too, Holly, as I recall. Right. Well, so Mr. Cox uh, <laughs> went before the Finance Committee in May of 2019. Um, I was there. And he said that the subsidy was only, quote, temporary. And that and I'm reading from my notes now, and that anyone who understood the industry, Mr. Cox said, would know that a bailout wouldn't save the industry, that we, quote, have to save ourselves. Okay, well, what's changed in the three years since the subsidy was introduced? Um, have they saved themselves? 
have they innovated? Um, is your local paper better? Uh, well, the layoffs are continuing. We've reported that occasionally. What innovations have we seen? Has real news production, and remember that one of the reasons, the reason for the subsidy said the subsequent uh, heritage minister, Pablo Rodriguez, was to defend democracy, that a strong and healthy media was essential to democracy, and also it would help uh, uh, supplant um, these other uh, voices that were spreading disinformation, and then it would help, real news would help marginalize the bad actors. So what has happened? Has the mainstream press grown stronger since the subsidy? What's happened to those voices? Have those, those other voices, the bad voices, haven't they become louder? I mean, the government incorrectly believed that I identifying, quote, this is the word they used, approved journalism outlets, that then by a panel of government appointed uh, adjudicators who decided who was a journalist and who wasn't, that then Canadians would have this list, you see, of the organizations that you could trust, not the bad pur purveyors of misinformation, but we'd have trusted organizations. Well, it's had the opposite effect. Uh, subsidies don't work. I mean, they, they, they not only perpetu perpetuated the mediocrity we talked about earlier, but worse, Government interference has provoked even greater mistrust. They think we're they think we're all bought off. Yeah, we even exactly. struggle with being yeah. tarred by that brush, you know. And so people have been driven to even more unreliable sources that perpetuate conspiracy theories because they they don't they don't trust the mainstream media. The subsidies wow. have been a fiasco. Yeah. So what should we do on that front? Should we uh, blow the whole thing up and and move on? How do we? Like, obviously, we've got to fund, like, from a, from a policy point of view, if you're going to fund anybody, it's the content producer, right? Right. Um, well, okay, so this is a really uh, vexing question, I have to tell you, you know, and there's a lot of people much smarter than me, who have thought hard about it and, you know, haven't come up with anything. Um, but uh, so the, the proposal on the table now, as I think we see the government trying to get out of perpetual subsidies for media, because let's face it, they're not, they're just not, the money required is so great that they're just not going to be able to subsidize these, these dying products in perpetuity. They're going to have to support themselves. And because Canadians are not going to tolerate waiting for MRIs when you're giving money to uh, post media. Exactly. That, that there's a limited yeah. shelf life for that. So the government is now has this Bill C-18, which is the Online News Act. It's how which, big tech is going to share revenues basically with the legacy media, right? Right. So, you know, and actually I, I urge the Frontier Centre to hear from large publishers too that support this, not just me. Mm -hmm. But essentially the argument is that big tech platforms uh, have been profiting from news content without returning a share of uh, the revenues. Now, Facebook insists that it provides more value in traffic mm -hmm. to the publishers than it actually gets in news, and that is supported by the facts. The danger is that Bill C-18 um, would make struggling newsrooms permanently dependent on Silicon Valley web giants that they blame for uh, their economic woes. Permanently dependent, not on readers, not on readers in Moose Jaw or Vancouver, permanently dependent on, um, on American, the prosperity of American multinational companies. So what's not understood, and I think you alluded to it there, David, is that the agreements would benefit the large 
media outfits because it's it depends on volume of news content so they would benefit the small organizations who might not file as many stories would not benefit so here we would have these large publishers increasingly uh, operating these increasingly unpopular products while forcing the small players out of the deal thus distorting the market again wow. you know, and worse it worse it leaves the startups totally out and would prevent it this would prevent innovation and disruption from naturally occurring so one of the alternatives that i've heard proposed um you ask uh, is that if they insist on legislating this that maybe the money should be pooled and spread across all journalism not just one company or one business model but the large publishers don't want this you know and uh, and uh, yeah surprise no surprise surprise uh, they didn't want startups getting the money either right? right when they had the subsidies they wanted them excluded uh so ironically though the, the amount of money we're still fighting over chicken bones the amount the amount of money at stake here may not save them anyway but it will perpetuate weak media this is a very tough environment and uh we've got to figure it out so we need a really big debate about c18 and uh you know that's that's probably almost a another bigger topic as well I, I wouldn't mind if, if you sure. don't mind i wouldn't mind saying one more thing david about the sure. subsidies because people are screaming about them all the time and the, there's a debate about whether the subsidies have influenced coverage yes right right so what i would say to that is the problem here it's not really as much as what you're seeing in copy although you might object to some of that because of the narratives we talked about because of the lack of skills in producing real information so it's not the copy that necessarily reflects friendly government coverage it's the information you don't see exactly the, the omission it's the dog that didn't bark yes how do you know if a government program was a failure and a waste of money if journalists don't tell you exactly you know so with the hollowing out of newsrooms and the loss of skills maybe the reporters don't even know themselves you know and here's and here's an example where you can ask and as you look at your local paper when i first started in ottawa in 1993 a staple of media coverage was subsidies how many stories about liberal subsidies to Bombardier? Yeah, Endless. SNC Lavalin, right? It was right. a staple of coverage. Where are those now? The, the subsidy stories, the stories about contracts have gone too. Why is that? Is it tougher to write about subsidies when you, you yourself take subsidies? Mm -hmm. But on the media subsidies, I would ask your viewers, you know, do they know if their local paper is taking money? Ha have they reported it? And if so, do you know how much it gets? Uh, does it publish stories? Why not? Why so don't be bashful. Speak up. You know, why not, Holly? The other uh, side just tell of that, them and though, then stand up for it. Yeah, for sure. I, I'm, but, I'm just what what that um, brings to my mind though is the other side to this, and it's almost like this ideological wokeism, if you will, where people get into cancel culture. So you have editors saying, well, we just don't want to hear that other perspective that is contrary to what is being funded as a message. Do you see that happening? We, we certainly come across it, unfortunately. Um, yes, but I'm, I'm going to defend young reporters and say it's because they don't know what they're doing. They, if all reporters want a story. If they could have some, like, so let's take, I mentioned earlier this, recently there's been some fuss uh, 
the conservatives have make, been making fuss over the proposed of a proposed SUV and truck uh, tax that would. Fund yes, we've got to talk so, about that. Do you know how that started? Yes, and congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> that started because well, we had two stories. One on the there's been four reports to, to Environment Minister Stephen Gibo. Uh, we've covered two of them. One on November 18th, we published. The other one we published on March 21st, I think it was. And these were literally recitations of the recommendations from green groups that were going before the minister. That's all the stories were. But then the and this is where I talk about my bag of snakes. Um, the, 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 the political actors uh, saw those stories. And next thing you know, you have uh, Jason Kenney standing in front of a truck lot saying they're going to tax your truck or you have Pierre Polyev doing a video. They're going to they're gonna tax your SUV. Well, that, that's what they do. That's what politicians do. But then reporters feel somehow obligated to respond to the conservatives like they want to balance it. Right. They, they have their narrative or their side. Mm -hmm. I have a great idea for how to avoid that. Just cover the report in the first place. Exactly. And let's not anybody have any opinions. Okay. And Mr. Yeah. Kenny can do whatever the heck he likes. And Mr. Jibo can say whatever he likes. How about the reporter just cover the facts? But finding those reports, there's the journalism skill. And reading them, well, that's really boring. Okay, so that is a brilliant example of a, another doozer of a story out of Black Locks. Um, so let's talk about that. We, we, we mentioned about the tax on trucks. What about the tax on, uh, what is it called again? Oh, yes, houses. Um, how did that come about, Polly? Uh, well, the words home equity tax, by the way, which has somehow wormed their way into the vernacular, were ours. Mm-hmm. And we, uh, this is going back a year, year and a half, uh, we had published uh, some information that we had been told by one of the stakeholders that a group associated with UBC called Generation Squeeze was, was doing a, uh, a study and they had received $250,000 from the CMHC Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation. And a big part of the study was taxing homes in order to help new home buyers get into the market. So we reported that story straight. And then the, the CEO of the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation went on Twitter and said, that's just terrible reporting. That's oh, yeah. awful. That's not with a ter terrible was the word he used. Right. So fine. That doesn't, we, we have, we, we like slings and arrows. That's okay. So we filed access to information on, on him. And what we found was his communication then with the UBC saying, yeah, no, drop that, drop that home equity, that, that tax part now. We're not, we can't, in other words, confirming what he had tried to say wasn't true in the first place. Yes, they were funding. Yes, they were funding a study that looked into home equity tax. And there's another story that kind of took off and it went off in all sorts of ways in a derivative manner, but Accountability journalism, back to your question, accountability journalism makes them account for the policies they're trying to develop on the surface in real time. In real time, not later, when they've already imposed something and it's too late. Give Canadians their say as policy is being developed. And uh, is, did the home equity tax get killed because of that? Well, Bill Morneau got up in the House of Commons and said, we're never, ever, I swear on my mother's grave, we're never, ever going to have home equity tax. So yeah. uh, 
there, there you go. Canada Blacklocks has delivered you a gift. Way to go. Bravo, Holly. <laughs> your team. Hey, so that's so what accountability journalism is. It's not saying that don't do it or do it. We're just saying that we're going to report it. Don't think it's going to be quiet until you slide it into an omnibus budget no. bill sometime in 2023. And there you go digging again. So speaking of digging, let's talk a little bit about that Bill C-11, previously, mm -hmm. what was it, C-10, mm -hmm. about free speech and the free press. I know you've declared your bona fides as an advocate of, the, of free speech or the free yes. press. What the heck are they talking about, a digital safety commissioner in the West? This sounds like out of 1984 to me. <laughs> the House of Special Purpose. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Uh, the, uh, the Digital Safety Commissioner, the idea is that this would be um, under the auspice of the CRTC, and they would have the power to uh, respond to anonymous complaints about online speech. Anonymous complaints. Anonymous complaints about online speech, and then they would investigate them, and if they thought they would then subpoena the, the, the perp. Uh, before uh, uh, some kind of committee and uh, subject to a $70,000 fine if they find you. So, uh, well, you know, we're an online, new online media. Uh, you know, we're, we are, our coverage is responsible, but sometimes, you know, there are all sorts of uh, reactions to mm -hmm. in various platforms and those are the ones they want to suppress. But, you know, freedom of expression means freedom from government regulation like that that's what it's been about for 400 years it's nothing to do with illegal content we've had the criminal code on speech since 1970 that takes care of pornography terrorism sedition um so what is Lander. this about? yeah so what is this about well mm -hmm. the department of heritage has told us what it's about uh they have said in briefing notes that it is about quote social cohesion wow and but that's what political dissent is. That's what yeah. it looks like. And uh, with this reason, my mind is yes, criticizing you're, government. You're really um, using information and the power of the state to to weaponize law against your political appointments. People who frankly don't agree with you. How crazy is that? That's what could happen. Yes, I don't know if I have time for an example, or are we just about done? Well, let's just, um, we're kind of in the home stretch hall. Yes. We've covered okay. a lot of ground here, but we okay. look at the truckers protests as an example. Yeah. Um, we watched a lot of reaction to that. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's amazing how many things were asserted by mem some members of the media in retrospect that were not even factual, that's for sure. Um, do you think that was a wake up call for, for the media? Yeah. Uh Yes, actually, I do. Uh, it doesn't really matter what you think about the truckers convoy. Um, I think that I think it's going to have far reaching effects that are going to echo forward. Um, I think the media found out right face to face what a problem they have in their stakeholders, their readers, Canadians, they found out about that. And, you know, we're finding out that a lot of the reasons that were used by lawmakers, even on their feet in the House of Commons to yeah. evoke the Emergencies Act, it's were utter not nonsense. true. Apartment arson, not true. Loaded guns in trucks, not true. Foreign funding, not true, said GoFundMe at the House of Commons Committee. Uh, and so we are now in the situation where this, as you're going to watch the Emergencies Act Committee unfold, where the government is increasingly under pressure to come up with one solid reason for invoking the, the, uh, the Emergencies Act. And so far, there really haven't been any other than we don't like those people.
So what should we do as Canadians um, as we look at the state of the media? I know, like, we as users have a huge role to play. We should be paying for good quality media. That's why we subscribe to your service. But what, where's the, the opportunities for hope here as we look at the fourth estate and a critical pillar to a high functioning democratic society like Canada? Well, I, I would only, in talking about the future, tell you a couple of facts about the past. You know, today there are 11 daily newspapers in the, in the parliamentary press gallery. In 1900, there were 32. We had a very vibrant media industry. Toronto alone, before the war, had 31 dailies and weeklies. With the invention of pulp and paper, uh, it, it changed everything. The masses suddenly had access to the newspapers that they couldn't afford before when they were printed on linen. Only the elite could afford this. You know, and the Dominion Bureau of Statistics said then, and how, how eerie is this? The Dominion Bureau of Statistics, now Statistics Canada, said, quote, the press must keep pace with the times or quickly suffer the consequences. The tempo of change now is now increasingly rapid and competition is keen, 1939. So all I would say is we're in a terrible, terrible period of disruption. And as old trees die, sunshine will land on new sprouts and they will grow. There will, I believe, that there will be more independence, that some of the old properties will rejuvenate, you know, and but I want people to try to tone down the rhetoric. You know, it's not going to help to call all journalists hacks and fake news because they're struggling. All you're going to do is drive any potential for good talent away from the business. It, some of the independents you're going to see, you're not going to like. They're going to be sloppy. They're going to be partisan. They're going to be sensational. They're going to be too sector focused, or maybe they're going to be too activist for your liking. Please be patient for us, to, with us. You as leaders at the center and your readers and followers on social media, be patient and nurture good content. If you see something you like, pay for it. And, and the subsidies aren't going to last forever. There is a huge user responsive advertising is gone, everybody. There's a huge user responsibility for this. And I know you don't have the money for to, to spend on like six publications, but somebody's going to come along very soon and they're going to create some smart, smart tech person, smarter than me, is going to create a platform where they can bundle all these properties together under one inexpensive price, but still pay the content producer what they're worth. That, that hasn't really been happening now. The content producers are still getting screwed, quite frankly. And, uh, and that's why we want subsidies. We want to soak the tech giants. Users have to pay, respect copyright, take it easy on journalists, and uh, be patient while we go through the, this, this period of deconstruction and regeneration. Well, Holly Doan, it's been a pleasure. We've had a far-reaching discussion, and um, we're so glad that you could join us today on behalf of all of us. And we're so thankful for your leadership and your courage and your incredible team of people. Thank you. Great questions. It's been really nice talking to you. It's been a pleasure. Um, your work uh, every day makes an outstanding difference, Holly. So keep up the great work. And we're looking forward to keep watching uh, Black Blocks every day. That ain't the way I heard it. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so, and thank you to all of you 
uh, friends of Frontier who have joined us today. Thank you so much for your many online comments as we've incorporated those into the discussion on time. And uh, we're very grateful for all your support and welcome your comments. Um, your donations make the mission at Frontier possible. Now be sure to join us next week, um, or pardon me, on May the 5th on Thursday for uh, Policy on the Frontier. We're pleased to announce that our guests will be Terry Eaton, who is an energy insider, commentator, and author. Mr. Eaton will be talking about the real state of Canadian energy. It will be very, very interesting. And how is it, it's so vital to our, our future as a country, and we'll be talking about the real reality of uh, the demand for fossil fuels in our world, and uh, so be sure not to miss it. Thank you so much for uh, donating to Frontier. Frontier is a nonpartisan organization. We do not accept any government funding. Your support makes it happen. So that's it for today. Thank you so much for joining us. And without open discussion and debate, you are not thinking and nor are you free. So keep asking good questions and do not be afraid. On behalf of all of us at Frontier, thank you for joining us and have a great day. <laughs>